Well, it's good to be with you this evening. I'd like to invite you to open yourself up to the proclamation of the word this evening and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Continuing our study in uh, Revelation, and we've been sharing uh, uh, our, our, some of our studies out of Revelation this week with uh, your teenagers, your teenagers. And uh, I want to continue looking with that with you this evening. I want to give you, if I can, just a little bit of a, a background on uh, where we've been. The whole premise of the book of Revelation might not be what you, you've always heard. I kind of always picked up around church that the book of Revelation was uh, primarily a book about the last days, okay? Not necessarily the end times. I mean, we are, we've been in the end times since, you know, Christ died and, and, and rose again and, and ascended into heaven. So we've been in the end times for some time. But I've been, I kind of always picked up that the book of Revelation was specifically about the last days, Okay, of which, of course, has to do with, um, you know, key figures, uh, end time events, uh, has to do with, uh, you know, the Antichrist. Uh, and kind of, I, you know, I've always kind of just picked up that, you know, if you wanted to know about those kinds of things, you got into the book of Revelation and you could study and you could learn about the Antichrist, for example, you know, and you could find out whether he is you know, Democrat or Republican. And, uh, you know, you could find out what wars are going to happen where and, and when gas prices are going to go down and come up and, and all of that kind of stuff. But when we actually got in the book of Revelation and began to find that's not at all what the emphasis of the book is about. And we've been sharing, in fact, with your teenagers what the book is all about. It tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally, the idea is, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, apocalypsis, and it means to unveil. So the idea that's cast forth then is that Jesus Christ is unveiled, and you get to see what's going on inside of Jesus. Now, this is really specific because the Jesus that we're looking at, okay, the Jesus that we're looking at is a human being Jesus, now, everybody knows that Jesus is, was, and always will be God, period. If Jesus was not God, then we have no salvation, okay? If Jesus was not God, then just another good human being died. So the whole, whole everything pivots in Christianity on Jesus being God. So Jesus is God. I'm telling you that because I don't want you to walk out here and say, Jeremiah didn't, hey, he didn't believe Jesus is God. Don't go out there and say that. I'll sick the teens on you. Okay, so Jesus is God. But you understand the miracle, what's so phenomenal about Jesus is Jesus, who is, was, and always will be God, came down and became a man. Still maintained who he was as God, but lived and functioned as a human being functioned. Okay, the only difference is Jesus was not born in sin. Jesus never sinned. One of the things we've been talking about this week is sin and what we're going to talk about tonight. Sin is not a physical thing. In fact, quite frankly, I'm so tired of sin being talked about like that. People talk about sin as if it was like, you know, uh, stealing, like, a, you know, the, it's something that's taken or, or it's a, an inappropriate movie or a dirty magazine or it's a foul word. Or, uh, that, that's not how the Bible talks about sin. It, it really isn't. That's not how the Bible talks about sin. Sin is a spiritual deal. And in, in particular, sp sin is a relational standpoint between us and God. Okay? Sin is looking at God, looking at Christ and saying, I'm not interested. It's rebellion against God. 
Jesus was not born in rebellion, and he never did rebel. Jesus never sinned. Okay, that's the difference between Jesus being a human being and us being a human being. Now, the, the, the linkage between Christ as a human being and us as a human being, which, by the way, is talked about thoroughly throughout the book of Revelation, is that Jesus, though he was not born in sin, Jesus was born in a sin-scarred body. He was born in a sin-scarred body, which means Jesus was not born in a glorified body. No one looked at Jesus and said, whoa, he glows. Wow. He never sweats. He's like an, he's like an elf. He never ages. <laughs> okay? No. That's not, he got gray hairs. Okay? Jesus was born in a sin-scarred body. I mean, in fact, the book of Isaiah tells us that he had no beauty nor majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So this is not a stretch, okay? Jesus came and identified with us in our weakness. He learned obedience through suffering. Uh, he grew up as a child. He had to learn his ABCs, okay? Those kinds of things. Now, the picture of that is seen, for instance, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. When John sees Jesus, he sees him as one who is a son of man. I didn't really get to you, uh, teens. I really didn't uh, explain this to you this week, okay? We just didn't get to it. But... In that passage, for those of you who have the NIV, it says John saw Jesus as one who was like a son of man. That's the NIV translation. Some of you who have the New King James and the King James, which are fine translations, they don't translate this portion of Scripture properly. And for anyone in here who's, who knows how to utilize Greek or knows someone who, who utilizes Greek, uh, of course, you can talk to the, the teens. But uh, anyone who, who utilizes Greek or knows about Greek, you can look up in the original language and you can find that um, the word son, weos in Greek, is not a proper noun. It's not a proper noun in the original language. So you do not capitalize son, which means when John saw Jesus, he did not say he was the son of man. He said he was someone like a son of man, meaning that Jesus, when he appears to John, John sees him. John says, wow, he's just like I am. He is a human being. Now, the miracle of Christianity, and folks, I'm not a, I'm not a violent guy, but I might get violent over this one. The message of the gospel is the life that Jesus lived is the life that you and I are called to live. There is no other Christianity but that, period. And if you were going to say, man, that's where you were supposed to do it, so you missed it, the whole thing. But the deal is, is the life that Jesus lived is the life that you and I are called to live, period. Jesus was the very first spirit-sourced man. And the life he lived was not out of the flesh. It was, it was a life lived sourced by the Spirit. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ lived, even though he was God, the things he did, he did not do because he was God, but because he was a man filled with God. The book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, right smack dab in the middle of the scene, uh, verses uh, 12, I think. Of course, I'm preaching. I should know this. Acts, chapter 2. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So Jesus came and demonstrates himself 
demonstrates himself to a world and says, hey, you want to know the kind of life that God destined for you to live. Teens, this is phenomenal news. You want to know the kind of life you've been called to live? Jesus lived that life. He set the standard. So Jesus wasn't super Christian. Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't above the ordinary. Jesus didn't live here, and the rest of us live here, and God's okay with that. The message is Jesus came and showed us the kind of life we've been called to live. Okay, pace yourself. Just, just pace yourself. Pace yourself with me, okay? This is, this, this is the message. This is the message that we, we, we've been presented. So when Jesus is revealed in the book of Revelation, this is what's being revealed. I want you to journey over with me uh, to the church at Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18, down through verse 29. The emphasis in Thyatira is, first off, if you notice, if you have the red letter edition, you'll notice that all of chapters 2 and 3 are in the red letters, which tells us Jesus is the one that's addressing these churches. He is the one that's presenting himself. He is speaking to these churches. So he comes to each church, and what's taking place with all of these churches is Jesus is revealing to them the kind of people that they're called to be in whatever circumstances they are in. Specifically to Thyatira, Jesus presents himself as the Son of God. Okay? He presents himself as the Son of God. Let me see if I can bend this out. Am I a little hot? Can you, am I too hot for you guys? Not temperature hot, loud hot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Come back with me. Okay? Come back with me, okay? Jesus presents himself, that's better. Jesus presents himself as the son of God, and he's showing them who they're called to be. One of the, and this is such an interesting study for those of you who really get into to, to just nitpicking and going after the word. Um, Jesus comes to Thyatira. He presents himself as the son of God. Most commentators, and this is ris a little risky, but most commentators when, when Jesus presents himself as the son of God, they think Jesus is presenting himself with a divine term, okay? And most of us, when we think of Jesus as the son of God, we consider that a divine term, like, you know, the, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the son of God on a divine level. But do you realize that that phrase son of God most oftentimes in the Bible does not refer to Jesus? Uh, well, most times it does not refer to Jesus. It refers to humanity, I found that interesting. Several times in the New Testament, you and I are called sons of God. In fact, we learn from Luke in, the, uh, in his uh, genealogy, chapter 3, and you, you don't necessarily have to turn here, although I'm going to I hope you brought your Bibles. I want you to look at a few passages uh, this evening. But if, in, in Luke's genealogy, I can just read this to you. There's a list of names where, where Luke uh, traces the lineage of Jesus back to Adam. And when he comes down to Adam and, and coming into verse 38, of course, talking about Canaan, he had a son, uh, which was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. So you learn, stay with me, you learn that Adam was created as a son of God. So as Jesus is the son of God, Adam and all of Adam's race are sons of God. Now you would say, what's the difference? And there is a difference, okay? Jesus is a son of God by right. Okay? Jesus is a son of God by right. You say, what does that mean? Jesus can go back. He can take you to his dad's house and say, God is my father. Same DNA. Joseph was not my dad. God was my dad. Jesus was a son of God by right. You are not a son of God by right. You and I are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? 
But we are both sons of God. Now the miracle, here's the message of the gospel, and, and, and this is echoed again through Revelation, is that Adam was created to function, to live in relationship with God as a son. He was created for sonship, which is beautiful. That's the whole image of God thing. See, we are the only ones that were created in the image of God. The angels were not created in the image of God. You and I are created in the image of God. In fact, about 10 years ago, and I don't know how many people know this, but there was this Nazarene guy. Don't need to mention him or where he's from. He wrote this book suggesting that, uh, well, he, he was a biologist, suggesting that the DNA of apes, there was this one family of apes where their DNA was closer to ours than its own cousins. Obviously suggesting, you know, some form of evolution, okay? He, he suggested this. And I was amazed how the church just, I mean, they were just up in arms against this guy, Okay? And uh, I, it didn't, that didn't really bother me much. It really didn't bother me. One, on one hand, we've all looked at certain people and thought, hey. Now that I believe that. But we've all looked at certain people and thought, hey. But the deal is, is biblically, we know that apes were not created in the image of God. It settles it. You and I are created in the image of God. You and I were created. Think about this. Adam was created unique among all of God's creation. Guys, even from the angels, we were created for intimacy and oneness with God. The problem is Adam fell from that. Adam fell from that relationship. And he plunged the human race into sin. So Jesus comes along. He takes on flesh. And he demonstrates to the human race, this is who you were called to be. This is the kind of relationship you were called to have. This is what humanity is supposed to look like. This is how we're supposed to live. This is the relationship. This is, what it, this is the big deal. And then Jesus marches to a cross. He takes our punishment and gives us the rights as, son, as sons. And you and I have the relationship with God that he had, which is, which is remarkable. So the whole picture that's coming through the book of Revelation that's presented to Thyatira is as Jesus is the son of God, you and I are called to operate in that relationship. You with me on that? <laughs> you drinking all this in? Okay. You and I are called to live as sons. Now with Thyatira, there are, there are obviously, there are several characteristics. Stay with me. There are several different characteristics of a son of God. And you can go into the book of Galatians and you can read about the fruit of the Spirit, which is to be displayed in a son of God's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay? That is the fruit of the Spirit. That is, a, that, that is to be displayed in the life of a son of God. It is not the fruit of the flesh. It is not the fruit of trying hard. It is the byproduct of a spirit-sourced man and a spirit-sourced woman. Amen? It's the fruit of the Spirit. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus highlights, because of their circumstances, two particular characteristics. One characteristic has to do with their sight, and another characteristic has to do with their walk. This is how he says it. Look with me at verse 18. Jesus says, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet are like bronze burn, uh, glowing in a furnace or burnished bronze. Two characteristics, eyes and feet. I want to give them to you really quickly. When he's talking about, and I thought this was, I thought this was funny. Most commentators, you know, you know what a commentary is, right? A commentary is where uh, a scholar Okay, who is, who is uh, his opinion is worthwhile. 
He's educated, she's educated. They have a, they have a valuable opinion. What they say matters. And so they take their, their comments, their insights in Scripture, those comments, and they put those in commentaries. And then you and I buy those and put those on our shelf, okay? I found it intriguing that most scholars, when they're looking at Jesus, whose eyes are like blazing fire, most of them suggest that Jesus is mad. Arr, arr. <laughs> he's, he's the mad Jesus. Arr. Eyes like blazing fire arr, kind of thing, which I think is a little bit not true. Okay. Um, yes, he's dealing with judgment in this passage, but you understand there are parts of the, the New Testament, and especially the Old Testament, okay, and, and in particular the Old Testament, where, where fire does not symbol, symbolize anger. It's, most of the time, it's a reference to purity. I mean, you have the burning bush. When God uh, appeared in the burning bush, it was, it was flames were in the bush. They weren't consuming the bush, but the flames were a sign of God's holiness. That's consistent. It's, it's a refining kind of a deal. So the, eyes, the deal is with the eyes is you have this refining process. Now put this together, and, and we can't go into the details of this because this is another study, but the idea is, is that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The outside burning bush God is now living inside of us. When we open our eyes, we literally, hey, the, the flames are showing. We see with purity of sight. In other words, you and I do not live by physical sight. You and I live by spiritual sight, which is incredible. That's how you and I are called. That is, a, that is a characteristic of a child of God. If you are a spirit-led, spirit-filled person, you are literally to see with eyes that are not human eyes, which is incredible. Now, he also does the same thing with the feet. In the Old Testament, God constantly appears with these big, golden, bronze, pillared feet. The idea is, is where God is going is where God is going. You get in his way, he's going to tromp you. <laughs> okay? He's going to smash you. The idea is, is as for the Christian, those feet are now living inside of you. And God's plan for your life, think about this, God's plan for your life cannot be thwarted. In fact, when you come into the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says in verse 8, I know your deeds, and I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What does it mean? Where I am leading you is where I am leading you. It's awesome. It's incredible. So this is the first two things that he says to Thyatira. You are to function as sons of God. Are you with me? You're to function. Christianity. One of the drums that I've been beating for years, and I, I honestly, I think, I think every minister at some point has, and probably every Sunday should reiterate, Christianity is not a physical thing. It is not. Coming to church does not make you a Christian, period. Adopting the do's and don'ts do not make you a Christian. So having the model of I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, and I don't lie, and I don't steal, and I don't have sex before marriage, well, so what? Well, hey, we're happy for that's, that, and that's wonderful. But see, you can stop smoking, stop drinking, and you can even not have sex before marriage and not be a Christian. Because what makes a Christian is the Spirit of God. God in Christ through the Holy Spirit lives in your body. This is what makes you a Christian. So if you are a Christian, you have two people living in you. Jesus and you. That's what makes us a Christian. And Christians do certain things and we're led by the Spirit of God in certain things. But you can do the things, you can mimic and act like a Christian and not be a Christian. 
So when we're talking about Christianity, we're not talking about physical things. We're talking about spiritual things. I've been stretching your teens with this this week. Really, I've been pressing them. In fact, I've been telling them that most of what we do on Sunday morning is not physical, it's spiritual. See, we believe there's a difference between coming to church on Sunday and coming to church on Sunday. That you can physically come to church on Sunday and yet not come to church on Sunday. You can come to church on Sunday and sing and not participate in worship. In fact, some people think actually that tithe is giving 10% of your money. I want to propose to you that you can give 10% of your money and never have tithed. Because tithe is an inside kind of a thing. Now, if we believe this about Christianity, folks, why would we not understand sin is the same thing? Sin is not a physical thing. Sin is not a physical thing. Sin is a, is a, is a relational kind of deal with Jesus Christ. That's what sin is. Now, don't take my word for that because when you get into the passage... And, he, and Jesus is talking to the church in Thyatira about the life they're called to live and, and as functioning and operating as sons of God, seeing as he sees, feeling as he feels, walking as he walks, having that kind of stuff going on in them, the same characteristics that are of Christ. He brings up the issue of sin. And I want to walk, the, I want to walk you through this. This was a legendary, just a wonderful study in my own life. I want to focus with you in verse, verse 20. We're going to skip verse 19 for time. Um, your district superintendent said I'd have you out of here by 10.30, so we're going to have to hurry. Uh, so go with me, if you would, to verse 20. And Jesus says this to the church at Thyatira, beginning in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, and, and why he says nevertheless? Because in verse 19, he's just said, you're progressing, you're growing, God is moving in your life. There's a lot of neat things that are taking place. However, there's a problem. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. This is so neat. When I first started studying this, it dawned on me. You, you, got, you all realize that when Jesus says you tolerate Jezebel, her name was probably not Jezebel. That was probably not her name. It is old, think about this, teens. It is Old Testament imagery that is placed in this woman. Okay? Her name was probably like, you know, Barbara. <laughs> no offense, Barb. But the deal is, is that he was, he was, she was probably Barbara, okay? But literally, Barbara has a spiritual condition in her life, and that spiritual condition is the same as that of Jezebel. You all know who Jezebel is? If you brought your Bibles tonight, turn with me. If you didn't, shame, shame, know your name, okay? So if you brought your Bibles, turn back with me to uh, the book of 1 Kings, which is really easy to find. It's right, uh, it's right before 2 Kings. And I want you to look with me at chapter 16. And in chapter 16, you are introduced to Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of the king Ahab. I wanna, I'm, tr I'm trying to paint the, the picture of Jezebel's life, which is a life of sin. Uh, while you're finding First Kings, one of the consistencies, I'm, a, I'm an attendant evangelist, and uh, I'm a Nazarene. In fact, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which means I'm legal. Uh, and we, we travel about 50 weeks a year on the road. And one of the things that I just pick up, I'd be interested in talking with you pastors about this, but one of the things that we consistently pick up in the church today, not just in the Church of the Nazarene, but overarching, 
and primarily with my generation, okay, which are the 20s, okay, all the way up through the mid-40s, is that even in our own denomination, there is a flippant view of sin. There really is. Would you believe me if I told you that I lose about four meetings a year to moral failure in the leadership of the church? I lose about four meetings a year. That means four times a year, a church will call me and say, hey, we got to cancel. So-and-so did something. There was an affair here. There was money issue there. Moral failure in the church about four times a year, which is really odd because they call me and say, this is no time for revival. (laughs) Everything's falling apart. Just come back when times are really good. I was like, okay, okay. But about four times a year, we we, we lose meetings to that. What's interesting to me is when I end up talking to people later on down the road from that church, how they respond. Most of the time, listen to me, most of the time, especially my generation, you ask them, hey, how's your church doing? What's going on in your church? Most of the time, they say stuff like, oh, yeah, we're recovering. And then they say stuff like, well, you heard about what happened, right? You heard about what took place. I say, well, what are you talking about? Well, our pastor, well, he made a mistake. He made a mistake. What mistake was that? Man, he stole $20,000. You understand that's not a mistake, right? Seriously, you don't whoops and rob a bank. Can Can I just be frank with you? You don't whoops and rob a bank. That's not a mistake. There is a difference. We believe, our group believes there's a difference between sin and mistakes. There's a difference. You do not sin and have an affair on your wife. That is, I mean, excuse me, you do not have a, <laughs> that didn't come out right. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I'm correcting myself as, as we speak. Block that off the tape. Having an affair on your wife is not a mistake, is what I'm trying to say. It's not a mistake. Fornication, you know what fornication is? It's sexual activity, not just sex. It's sexual activity before marriage. That is not a mistake. It's not an accident. You don't just whoops and that happens. That's called sin. It's rebellion. It's looking in the face of Jesus and saying, I'm not interested in the life you've called me to live, period. I'm not interested. Jesus, I know your will for my life. I know what your word says. I've walked with you. I know your heart. I know your desire. Just butt out of my situation. I'm doing what I want to do. That's what sin is. And you understand, one of the things we're trying to tell the church today, and folks, this is devastating, the, the habitual sin, the person who lives in sin. The issue with Thyatira, it's not that they just had someone in their church commit a sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that they are tolerating that. Folks, do you know how devastating it is when a child of God, dev- a child of God tolerates sin? Do you know how devastating that is? If you call yourself a Christian tonight... It is absolutely, utterly arrogant to think that you can live in rebellion against God and that it's just trivial. In fact, literally what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira, he says this woman who's living in sin, he paints this vivid picture from Israel's past of the kind of issues that are going on in her life. Again, he talks about Jezebel. And uh, if you go back into chapter 16, and to keep this quick, you know all about Jezebel. Chapter 16, verse 29, it tells us in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, uh, this guy Ahab became king over Israel. He reigns in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. 
And then it tells us, verse 30, that Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's how evil Ahab was. And what is more, he also considered it trivial. Listen to that. That's sin. He considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebet, because he, uh, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of this, this foreign king. Okay? He married Jezebel, this daughter of this foreign king. Now, you understand, because she's the daughter of a foreign king, he didn't meet her on Facebook. He, it wasn't like, yeah, I was down there at the 7-Eleven picking up some uh, milk, ran into Jezebel. Wow, really nice girl, really good looking. All, it's not that kind of a thing. This was a, scholars tell us this was a political alliance. Ahab, as ungodly as he was, did not rely on God for the provision and protection of Israel. He relied on the flesh and of his own means. Even political alliance with a pagan nation. So he marries this woman, Jezebel, and you learn all about her, okay? First off, one of the first things you learn about her when you come into chapter 18, right in the middle of this scene where Ahab and Elijah have this showdown. You guys remember all about this. One of the greatest passages in the Old Testament, in my opinion. Uh, Elijah, hero of the Old Testament, symbol of the prophets, calls out Ahab and the sin in which he lived in. He said, listen, I want you to bring, go down with me, to verse 19. I want you to see that the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher, where they came from. Verse 19. Now summon the people, chapter 18, verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher. And look what he adds. Who eat, as Je who eat at Jezebel's table. See, Jezebel brought these prophets into, you can see right there, who eat at Jezebel's table. They, she brought these prophets into Israel, which is why you understand, which is why when, when the prophets are destroyed and God moves through Elijah and it's this powerful scene, when Jezebel gets upset, hey, he runs. Elijah runs from her. Why? Because the wickedness stemmed from this woman. That's the issue. So when, in our passage in Thyatira, when Jesus says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, he's saying this woman here is not just, yeah, she's, she's teaching things she shouldn't teach. And, and oh, yeah, she had that affair a while back and we should have dealt with it. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying this woman is the center focal point of evil in your community and you're cool with it. In, in our generation, you know what that looks like? Well, he made a mistake. He made a mistake. I'm not talking about not being redemptive. Come on, we need to be redemptive. But folks, you call sin, sin. That's all there is to it, okay? I'm not beating my own drum. I'm not being a jerk. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you. From a biblical standpoint, take responsibility. I tell teens this all the time. What we do at teen camp and what I do as a preacher, uh, and, and if you're not interested in this, don't have me. But what I do as a preacher is I stand up and I allow the Word of God to paint a picture of what a Christian looks like. I don't give you my opinions. I don't beat my own drums. I don't push anything on you but that passage. This is what a Christian looks like. And you and I sit back and look at that. And wherever we don't look like that picture, we respond. And we've been very honest. I've been very straightforward with your teens this week. Hey, you don't want to be a Christian? No pressure. Don't be a Christian. I appreciate it if you still tithe. But don't, don't, hey, if you don't want to be a Christian, don't be a Christian. Seriously, don't, not a big deal. Don't be a Christian, okay? 
but you're going to walk out of here knowing exactly what one looks like. That's the message. That's the deal. So sin is, is if you're going to live in sin, live in sin. But don't be a hypocrite. Don't lie about it. So the issue is, and this is, Jesus comes to, to Thyatira and he says, listen, you guys are tolerating sin. And he tries to paint for them the devastating picture of sin. And I wanted to, I want to give you an illustration of this tonight. Again, we're talking, now, now put this together. We're talking about sons of God. Jesus demonstrated the kind of uh, life that a son of God lives. Okay? The relationship with God that a son of God has. Are you with me? You're looking at me? If you're a Christian, you are a son of God. That's girls and guys. You're children of God. Do you know how devastating it is and what is at stake when a son of God sins? That's the issue. In the passage, what Jesus talks about, the whole issue, think this is beautiful. The whole issue with Jezebel surrounds authority. Literally, now consider this. Everyone in Thyatira, by tolerating her sin, has given up authority. Listen to how, uh, listen to how Jesus speaks. Uh, you come down, and of course, from verses 21 down through verse 24, he talks about the authority that he has as a son of God. But then he comes down into verse 26, and he says, to him who overcomes, in other words, to him who overcomes this issue and continues on responding to me and no longer tolerates sin, he says, I will give authority over the nations. Now, you immediately say, okay, I'm going to get authority over the nations. What kind of authority am I is he talking about? Verse 27, he quotes this Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So you understand the issue of sin. Get this. The issue of sin. This is beautiful. The issue of sin is one of authority. When you embark as a child of God into sin, what you are doing is an, it literally giving up authority in your life. If you have your Bibles, I want you to see this for yourself. Of course, speaking about a son of God and knowing that Adam was created for sonship, I went back and I looked at Adam's first sin. And before I got to the first sin issue, of course, I went to uh, Genesis chapter 1. And you go through the first 24 verses, 25 verses of Genesis. And it's about God creating all of this stuff. Sakes, all these days of creation, God's creating all this stuff. He comes down to verse 26. And God, it's almost like God gets this idea. Listen to this language. He says, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. Now listen to this. And let them rule. And before we go on, you understand before this point, no one ruled but God. Angels did not rule. Animals did not rule. That is a God thing. Which again is passed on to us because why? We're sons of God. We're heirs to the throne. So he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's create mankind as in a sonship relationship and invite them not into our godness. They're going to be humans, but let's invite them into our rule and authority. In fact, you go on, listen to all this language. He says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I mean, that's incredible authority. He goes on in verse 27, and he says, so God created man in his own image, male and female. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Didn't say that to the angels. 
Didn't say that to lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Okay. He tells man to fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creature that moves along the ground. Then in fact, he says in verse 29, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, it'll be yours. Verse 30, and to, oh, by the way, to all of the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give to you. Hey, every green, uh, every green plant. So when we're talking about, listen to this, when we're talking about being as sons of God, the issue is one of authority. You and I have, uh, inherent within being a child of God is walking and living in relationship with God and having authority. Now, what I found really significant is after sin, all kinds of things happen. Earth is subject to frustration. Man seems to have no authority. And in fact, the enemy has authority over man. Go with me to Luke. And in Luke chapter 4, uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the temptations of Jesus. But something specific is mentioned in Luke chapter 4, in Luke's account. In verse 5, it says, the devil led him up. You might want to bring this up if you can get it up there. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, listen to this, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. And how can Satan give, all of his, uh, give Jesus all of its authority and splendor? For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Now, when I first read that, I said to myself, well, what bonehead gave him that authority? Adam did. Folks, Adam did. You want to know, listen to this. You want to know what's at stake when a son of God sins, that's it. Think about this. Sin in your finances is not, uh, my wife and I, we bought a house for the first time in ever. <laughs> we bought a house. We lived out of buses all, all our life and trailers and that kind of thing. And we just bought a house in, um, in December. And the government tells us, well, we've pulled a bus and we've had a Jeep that, w that we, we travel out of as a ministry vehicle. But when we got a house, we actually have to have a physical car there. And it has something to do with the government in terms of tax purposes, having a car and, and being at home and out of ministry, you know, that, all that kind of stuff. So we were going to buy a, a car. And I've never really had to do the tax thing before on cars because, you know, when you buy a ministry vehicle, no tax. Um, but now I had to pay tax. Well, I was talking to my next door neighbor about it, who's not a Christian there. We're going to win him to the Lord. Just close. But I'm talking to him about it. I'm telling him all the tax breaks as a minister and all that, you know, and he's getting a kick out of it. And he says, well, I tell you what we did. He goes, we just bought this car, paid $2,000 for it, but we put down $200 on the title. And I thought about that. Sounded pretty good at first, quite frankly. 200 bucks, pay $20 for tax. It's not a bad deal. But then it dawned on me. Do you understand? Think about this. The sin of that is not just, well, Jared, come on. It's just a number and it's just tax. It's not a big deal. Do you understand the real issue at stake is not $200 on taxes. The real issue at stake is you are looking in that moment at Satan and saying, Satan, I no longer want my finances to revolve around Jesus Christ sourced by his spirit under his direction, under his leading. Satan, I want you to come in my life 
and I want you to wash my finances in your presence and in your person. I want my finances to beat to the drum of your life. I want you to color every financial transaction that I make. That's sin in your finances. That's exactly what you're doing. You look at sexual sin. Sexual sin is not a magazine. It is not. Sexual sin is not a video. Sexual sin is you looking in the face of the enemy and saying, Oh, Satan, I beg you. I want you to attune my eyes to see women and men, not the way God created them, but the way you want them to function. In fact, I invite you into my home. I want you to wash my kids in this. I want to give you authority in my home over my sex drive. I want sensuality to be the center of my life, not Christ. Folks, that's sin. Sin is not just a deed. I got really interested in this. I had a teen. Teens are awesome. They ask questions that the rest of us are too scared to. And I had this teen come up to me not too long ago, and he critiqued. You get a kick out of this. He critiqued the martyrs. He's an awesome kid. He's a thinker. And he said, Jeremiah, he goes, I think the martyrs were foolish, careless, even reckless. And I said, okay, I'm interested. Spill it out to me. They said, Roman, in short, he said, a Roman soldier comes into a house. Him and his buddy got swords. Frightened mom, two kids, and a man. They're Jews, okay? No, they're Christians. He said they're Christians. They're Christians. And the Roman soldier says, if you admit that you're a Christian, I'm, cut, I'm, I'm slaying you all right now. I'm going to kill you, your wife, and your kids. And the teen said, all they had to do was lie. Let me ask you a question here. And this is a question he proposed. If, if that dad lied, would Jesus forgive him? We're not going on to answer. You have to answer. Would Jesus forgive him? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. Would Jesus forgive that guy? Yes, he would. And the teen said, then why didn't he just lie? He could have spared the life of his kids. He could have went on in ministry. He could have walked. Jesus would understand. In fact, you know, quite frankly, Jesus would understand. He would understand the pressure and the hurt and the pain. And, and that guy could walk out of that scene and say, forgive me. I just, I was a moment of, and all that. And Jesus would forgive. Do you know why the martyrs didn't? Because they knew sin was not just an event. Sin was, Satan, I want to live by your lies and not by truth. That's the issue of sin. That's what we're talking about. Jesus comes to the church of Thyatira and he says, you are tolerating sin. Dad, I want to be quite frank with you. Well, first off, do you know that the news is, and you can look this up on the internet, Somewhere around 70 to 75% of this men in this place right now are in pornography. That's statistics, okay? Do you realize that when you get into that stuff in the middle of the night, that it's not just affecting you, that you are letting the enemy just tramp right in your home and you're giving authority to him? I'm telling you, it's what it is. You wonder why you can't, you wonder why your wife is attacked. You're the spiritual head of your household. You wonder why your daughter acts the way she does. You wonder what's going on in your son's life. You wonder why, I mean, think about it, folks. Sin is not just an activity. Sin is not just an event. So I want to ask you tonight, our, our ministry team is going to come and they're going to they're 
lead us in some response time. I'm, I'm wondering in here, and this is so unfair, and you, you've come, you think, okay, I'll come Thursday night to camp meeting because the big night's Friday night. I can get in and get it. It'll be good. And then here you come, and the issue is raised, and God is speaking to you, and you're thinking to yourself, I've got to get up in front of everybody in this place. You don't have to. You don't have to. Don't respond at all. And also, I got a little bone to pick about those kind of things. Well, God says we can pray in our seat. I don't think so. I really don't think so. Theologically, I know I'll get some flack on this. I believe the altar, I've been talking to your teens about this. I think the altar is a modern day baptism. See, in early church, you got saved, they took you out, threw you in a river. <laughs> okay, that's, and you did it in front of everybody. We don't tolerate that today, okay? Do you know what we do instead? This right here. Do you know, I did some research on this. Do you know where the altar comes from? It's not found in our Bible. I found some interesting suggestions and opinions. Hard to, it's hard to pinpoint it down. But many believe that our, our altars came from the Middle Ages when knights were knighted by a king. They adopted the process. A knight would come. They would bow down before an altar. They would expose the back of their neck, which is the most vulnerable part of their body, and they would say to the king, slay me or knight me. One of the two. I'm loyal to the king. If slaying me will better serve the country than me protecting you, do it. Slay me or knight me. I'm absolutely at your, I'm absolutely at your disposal. I'm completely 100% vulnerable to you. I believe the church looked at that and thought, that's good. And we adopted that in here. So when you are coming down to the altar, what you're saying before everyone is, Jesus, I'm becoming absolutely, totally, completely vulnerable to you tonight. I give you permission to speak to me. I give you permission to deal with me on this. And you know what? I could give a care less who's looking. I don't care. In fact, you know what? The, the fact of the matter is, I'm desperate enough to get out of my circumstances I don't want the enemy to have any authority whatsoever in my home, over my family, over my kids. Jesus, would you take back? Could I literally live in victory the way you called me to live? Because I'm done giving the enemy authority over my life. I'm telling you, for me, I, I don't want the enemy to have any area of authority. And you understand, we, <laughs> I used to, forgive me, I used to tease the old timers. My mammy. We come from the South. We had Mammy and Pappy. She used to say stuff like, don't give the devil a foothold. <laughs> and all of us in college would laugh at her. She was right. I'm telling you, she was right. When you enter into sin, that's exactly what you're doing. You're giving the enemy authority in your life. So come, university ministry team. Stand up out of your seat. Come. And I want you to lead us in a, a response time. Would you like to respond tonight? Who in this place would say, hey, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what was at stake. I did not realize the consequences. I had no idea that it was that serious. I didn't understand that was the big deal with sin. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, restore me. Jesus, come down in my life and peel off any, in, the fingers off of any area of my life where Satan has sunk his claws in. I want his hand on me no more. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word this evening. Oh, God.
I did. I, I'm in that group. I had no idea that was what was at stake. I had no idea. I don't want the enemy to have any authority in my life. I certainly don't want him breathing down the neck of my wife and kids. Maybe Paul was really serious when he said stuff like that. I am the spiritual covering of my wife. That I am the spiritual head of my household. And that I have a responsibility as a father and as a husband. And that somehow my walk with you, Jesus, affects my home. I love you tonight with all my heart, Jesus. Would you move in my life? And would you take complete authority over every bodily drive, over every thought, over every emotion, over every activity? And could you truly reign in me as the songs sing? Because I'm tired of just singing the songs, Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking around. I believe there are, and, and teens are going to respond. They have been seeking God all week. I believe there's adults here that need to respond. And you don't need to come here and confess, and you don't need to come here and it just, I'm just saying. Is he talking to some of you here? Is there anyone here that needs to respond? Would you, would you seek? How desperate are you? How desperate are you for this whole thing? We want to spend the next few moments just getting after him. And if he's speaking to you tonight, I'm going to trust that you're not just going to sit there. Because I, I do, I believe with all my heart, if you can't stand up in here, you will never stand up out there. You just won't. So come. Would you come and seek as a family? Jesus, I want to spend the next few moments just seeking you. Have your way. In your name we pray.